So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, are, his son, are dead? And then the young man said, who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. A lot of information there, huh? As we begin this book of Second Samuel, it's 24 chapters. It primarily covers the reign of King David, a great man of God. He was the greatest king of Israel. And he's a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, before David rules any part of Israel, Saul would have to die. And that's what we read about today, right? And so David's going to be crowned king of Judah. We're going to see the southern area of Israel in chapter 2 of this book. And then later he becomes the king of all Israel in Samuel chapter 5. But here we read in verse 1 that David had returned from his slaughter of the Amalekites, something we studied in 1 Samuel 30, and he's been in Ziklag a couple of days. And then on the third day, it's been three days, this man has journeyed 80 miles. Okay, They didn't have uh, cars back then, but this guy journeys 80 miles. And he reaches David with some information. His clothes are torn, right? Think about that. He's got dirt on his head. And he just falls before David. And so David asks, hey, where, where are you coming from? And so he just, I'm I, I escaped from the camp of Israel. Now David knew there was a war going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And so he asks him, of course, what happened? And the man replies, well, the soldiers of Israel have fled. They've been defeated. Many are dead. But here's the thing, including Saul, that's the king, and his sons. So David asked the young man, how do you know for sure that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And then the young man tells the story, we read there in verses 6 through 10. And he basically says, you know what, I just I happened to be there on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. He had tried to take his own life, suicide, right? And so there he was with the chariots and riders almost upon him. And so you can picture the king of the country. He's got the spear inside of him, and the enemies are approaching rapidly. And so he said, Saul called me and asked me who I was. I told him I'm an Amalekite. And then he begged me to take his life. He was in so much pain. And according to this guy, there's no way he could survive. And so the, the man says, I stood over him and I killed him. I took the crown and I took his armband and I brought them here to my Lord. Speaking of David. Now, these are things we don't read about in 1 Samuel chapter 30. But um, this whole story right here, uh, there's different views. Some say this guy was lying. That's not the, really the way it happened. But I think when you put everything together, um, it, it really kind of makes sense. Now remember, in the Hebrew Bible, there's not First and Second Samuel. It's all one book. And so here we have basically the completion and the provision of some other details in the incident and the death of Saul. Apparently what happened, you guys remember the story? The Philistines, uh, their archers had struck Saul. And so he was 
badly wounded with arrows, and he knew he couldn't go on. Now, in those days, if you got the king, oh, man, you torture him. And so there he is. He can't go on. He's got arrows through his body. And he tells his armor bearer, you guys remember the story? He told his armor bearer, kill me. Because if not, they're going to come and they're torture me. And his armor bearer wouldn't do it. And so Saul committed suicide, right? He killed himself. He fell on his sword. But apparently it wasn't enough. He still wasn't dead. And so as he's there and the enemies are rapidly approaching, this Amalekite comes and he says, you, you got to finish me off. And so the Amalekite is the one that, you know, is responsible ultimately, I guess you could say, for taking the life of King Saul. And that's probably what went down. I mean, it's possible that the Amalekite here was lying, but it seems to make sense when you put everything together, especially when you consider the typologies of what an Amalekite is, and you kind of see the way the whole story unfolded. And so here's the thing, you guys. If someone asked you who killed King Saul, you could probably say uh, multiple things, right? You could probably say the Philistines did. They were the ones that wounded him to the point that he couldn't go on. You could probably also say that Saul took his own life, a suicide. You know, there's only two of those in the Bible, Judas and Saul. That's a lot. So that's a, a conversation in of itself, suicide. Thirdly, we have this story right here that in the end, it was an Amalekite who took his life. Which, when you study the Bible, and here's where I think it, it really fits like a puzzle, it's extremely ironic because back in the early days, in First Samuel chapter 15, Saul was commanded to utterly wipe out the Amalekites. It would be like, hey, I want you to get that gang over there. Because back in Exodus chapter 17, God had commanded Israel to do that. They had ambushed Israel when they came out of Egypt. It was a war going on. And so... You know, God said to Saul, you know, utterly wipe out the Amalekites. But Saul didn't do it. He didn't. He disobeyed. And in the end, he was killed by an Amalekite. And I, and I think when you look at it from that perspective, there's a lesson there for us. You know, many Bible teachers teach that the Amalekites are a typology. They're a picture the representation of the flesh, that is the fallen nature. And God commands us to kill, to crucify the flesh, because if we don't, then that flesh will kill us. You know, I could tell you story after story after story of individuals who couldn't overcome their flesh. And what ends up happening, they ended up, you know, dying. I my heart goes out to people who die of cirrhosis of the liver. My heart goes out to people, you know, dead and drunk driving accidents. My heart goes out to people who, you know, the sexual drive, they never got it under control. They were like animals. And then they got married and they thought that would solve it. But no, you still have this sexual drive. And what ends up happening is he goes out on his wife and it ruins the whole family. They ruin their life. Why? Because they can't control their body appetites. And see, the lesson there is, Saul, you were supposed to kill the Amalekites. But Saul didn't. He just kicked it. 
You know, when you read the Bible, and it's really easy to figure out, he didn't just spare King Agag. I mean, there were multiple Amalekites that were around. I mean, he did not do what God told him to do. And as a result of that, they killed him. And I'm telling you guys, man, this is an important lesson for us. I mean, some people, they have no self-discipline. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, when you're younger, it's okay to have a cheeseburger late at night, okay? But when you reach a certain age, you know, you're killing yourself, man. It's been a while since I've been to Tommy's uh, for reasons I think that you guys probably know. But, you know, those are, those are, believe it or not, those are little glimpses of how a lot of times we don't, you know, have that self-control. There's some people, they just say everything they want. You know, that they have no discipline of their words. I mean, and in the end, it's going to end up killing them. You see, we have this fallen nature, you guys. When Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3, man fell. And he actually has now an inclination towards evil. That's why you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be selfish. Two-year-olds by nature are selfish. That's why you don't have to teach a two-year-old to lie. You don't have to teach them, okay, now lie on this. No, they, they know, oh, I didn't take the cookie. Oh, yes, you did. You know why? Because of the fallen nature that we have. Um, if we just let our body lead us, just, oh, you know what, I want to be with her, her. I mean, what? we can't. We have to have that self-control. And what ends up happening, you guys, in the, in the world that we live in, we have like the Nike mentality that says, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> no, we have to discipline ourselves. And we have to crucify the flesh, this fallen nature, you guys. We are not animals. You know, I love my dog, Chip. I really do. You guys know him, right? I should bring a picture of him one day. I think you guys would really appreciate him. But we hardly ever give him human food. Every once in a while we do. And uh, the other day we gave him a, a little bit of the honey-baked ham for Christmas. It was his Christmas gift, you know. And so we put it down there on the floor. And, you know, I, I love Chip. But I tell you what, man, once he got that ham, oh, he was a different creature. <laughs> I'm serious, man. So I went down there. Ooh, he almost bit my hand off. <laughs> You know, that's an animal. We can kind of understand that. But you guys, you are not animals. You can do what's right in God's sight. Don't let your body lead you. Let God lead you by his word. And then you do what's right. There's that lesson that we have to murder the flesh, so to speak. We have to overcome it. We have to exercise that self-discipline. There's a really perfect passage for this in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I mean, it doesn't get really a whole lot clearer than that, right? I mean, if we live according to the flesh, you know, you're going to die. And many things, and, and maybe you won't die physically, you guys. Maybe you're not going to die physically. But all the, the, the dreams that God had for you, all the aspirations, your destiny will die unless you crucify the flesh, right? How can we be free from this fallen flesh? The answer is found in the completion of that verse. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
You see, before I was a Christian, I couldn't stop my addictions. I couldn't stop my sexual behavior. I couldn't stop cussing like a sailor. You know, before I was a Christian, I, 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 couldn't, I didn't have the power to overcome the flesh. But when I became a Christian, the Spirit of God came inside of me. And now, let me tell you something, man. When God lives in you, now you have the power to overcome whatever that temptation is. And this is a promise for us. It's a beautiful promise in which God sets us free. You know, you wonder, who killed Saul? The Philistines did, right? Saul took his own life. It's a lesson there. The Amalekites did, the fallen flesh. But then one last thing that I need to mention to you, and that is that God did. Because over in First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 14, it says, But he did not inquire of the Lord, speaking of Saul, therefore he, capital H, God killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And some people might look at that and they say, man, God's mean. No, God's not mean. God's holy. God's holy. And one day we will stand before God and we will give an account. He loves us. He sent his son to change our life. We have to make sure we walk in holiness. Tragically and justly, God is holy. This would be the final word. So you do the autopsy. You guys know what autopsies are. How did Saul die? I think in the end we can honestly say all these things with the capstone being that God killed him. Matthew 10, 28 is an important verse. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so, you guys, I'm telling you this. God has an amazing, amazing plan for your life. Most of the people out there in this world will not attain to those plans. Why? Because they can't crucify the flesh. But by the Spirit, I pray you guys would put to death the deeds of the body so that you can live and live abundantly. You see, Saul becomes a visual for us all. And so does David. We're going to see later what he does to this Amalekite who was undoubtedly attempting to advance his own interests. You know, he thought that David would reward him, but David didn't. We're going to see today... That Saul is a picture of the, the fallen man. David is a picture of the spiritual man. Saul is kind of the picture of the devil. But David is a picture of Jesus. Because look what happens next, you guys. As you read in verse 11, it says, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am an Amalekite. I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. First there's this information. We find out how, how Saul died, Right? But then, as we go through this right here, we see David's going to be involved in lamentation. And again, in verse 11, we see the four people groups listed that David mourned for. Not necessarily in this order. He mourned for Jonathan. That's very understandable. He mourned for the people of the Lord, 
right? He mourned for the nation of Israel. But here's the one that's a trip, you guys. He mourned for Saul. He mourned for Saul. Now that right there is kind of difficult to understand. If you're, Think of your worst enemy right now. Hopefully you can't think of one. <laughs> Maybe you can. You're like, hey, this guy hates me. This guy wants to kill me. That was Saul. Saul's obsession was to kill David. He hunted him down. He hunted him down. And so when David finds out that this guy that wanted to kill him died, what we find is that David actually mourned for him. And, and I just really thought about that. I, and you guys, come on, be real, be honest. Would that be your reaction? Your worst enemy dies. And I'll bet you, and I'm sorry to say this, but I'll bet you most of you here, in the deepest part of your heart, you would be happy. I would venture to say that. I can probably say that. I, I, I'm a God, I, I think I might. I think like deep down in my heart, I'd be like, yeah, that's what he gets for talking smack about me, you know, or that's what they get for whatever it is that they did or yeah, yeah, they got it. You know, I think in all honesty, we would. But David is a picture of Jesus and he's very different than we are. And I think we got to see this and I think we see this here in our study today. We're going to see later David even writes a song over this whole incident. Would you mourn if your worst enemy, the one who was absolutely obsessed with killing you, would you mourn if they died? And the answer is probably not. You see, David was different, and it's impressive. It's almost as impressive as Jesus, but not quite. Because Saul tried to kill David, but he didn't. What if you knew in advance this is the one that is going to kill me. These are the ones that are going to nail me to a cross. Would you mourn for them? Well, that's what Jesus did, right? In Luke chapter 19, 41 through 44, as he drew near the city of Jerusalem, and for those of you guys that went to have gone to Israel, I'm extremely jealous, for one. But you guys know, man, to see the whole city, right? The city of Jerusalem. Jesus saw it, and he just, man, Luke chapter 19, 41 through 44, he just mourned. And he was weeping over Jerusalem because they had rejected him. And he knew as a result of them rejecting him that he would have to judge them. Matthew even gives us some specifics in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, God wants the whole world to get saved. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everybody to get saved. But the thing is, everybody has to make their own choice. Do you want to follow the Lord? Then follow the Lord. You probably don't want to follow the Lord. If you're not following the Lord, you've got to make that choice. But either way, Jesus loves you. But he won't force you. you know, how many of us here, we know exactly what it's like. Well, maybe some of you here don't know what it's like. I mean, did you ever like a girl and she didn't like you? 
You're like, no, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and you want this relationship. You want this relationship, but they don't want it. You're not my type. That's the way a lot of people are with God. God wants a relationship with you. God doesn't want a religion. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want you to change the way you dress necessarily or, you know, I don't know, be weird. God just wants a relationship with you. The question is, do you want one with him? And the Lord says, man, I wanted to gather you under my my wings like like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And as a result of that, he knew that they would be judged. See, David was different for a lot of reasons. Look at verse 13, you guys. It says, And then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, Well, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And so David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And so David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now David's different. David is definitely different. And we see the information, we see the lamentation, and now we see the vindication. And I tell you what, you guys, I don't know if you can catch this teaching or not, But I'll tell you what, David seriously honored the anointed of the Lord. He was loyal. He was just. He feared God. And he expected others to do the same. He wasn't going to be a Judas. He wasn't going to be a betrayer. He was going to be loyal to the very end. Remember in the cave in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. That's David speaking to Saul. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. I sure didn't seem like it. It's here Saul trying to kill him. David has the opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't. Because he knows he's the Lord's anointed. He understands that. We see that in the cave. We also see it in the camp. In 1 Samuel 26, 9, David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Nobody. See, the way that this whole thing unfolds is, is so amazing. And even though David's not a perfect man, he's not. Because there's no perfect man. Only Jesus was perfect. Tell you what, David was an amazing man. And it, and it really, it just wants me, it, it makes me want to be like, like David, to be like Jesus. You know, we're the godly men. We're the men who really fear God, who, who follow the Lord, who lead their families. Where are those type of men? Where are those type of men... David is kind of like a a, a visual of a soldier fighting the Lord's battles. But a man of incredible passion and integrity. And he was a psalmist. And he was amazing. So when his enemy dies, and, and I know it's not the same comparison, but 
it, there's, a, there's a smidget of a comparison like Osama bin Laden. Even though I know Osama bin Laden did a lot more than Saul. When Osama bin Laden died, everybody partied. Everybody was so happy. Right? In America, we were, we were happy. And, and, you know, justice is justice. And that's cool, you know. We love our country. But, but God never rejoices. Even at the death of the wicked. And David was like God. David loved the Lord that way. He did not want the worst for his enemies. And sometimes, I'll tell you what, I think even Christians want the worst for their brothers and their sisters. And it's in our heart. We got to be so careful, you guys. We really do. We got to be like David. Not only did he not rejoice when his enemy died, the guy who killed his enemy, he ends up killing him. That's pretty amazing, huh? Why is that? Because he honored the Lord. He loved God. And that's where everything, everything starts. David loved God. You know, I tell my daughter, and, and I hope I don't embarrass her, um, but I think that uh, you guys know how it is. You know, you're like, well, how can you know, I find a, a godly man or a godly girl or or what, what is it going to take for this individual? They're going to oversee a ministry or, or whatever it is. And yeah, there's things that you look for. But, but the main thing that you look for is their relationship with God. Their personal relationship with God. I tell my daughter, if he loves the Lord, then he'll have the capacity to love you. But if he doesn't love the Lord, then he will never have that love. The love of a godly man for his, for his wife. And of course that works both ways. But that was David. David loved the Lord. He feared the Lord. And so therefore it just spills down into all of his decisions and all the things that he has. Question for you guys tonight. You know, we can just stop and examine our heart. How is your relationship with God? Do you really love the Lord? Do you really want to please Him? Is that your passion? Is that what gets you up out of the bed in the morning? I can't wait to see what God's going to do today, man, because I want, I want to work. I want to serve. I want to see what God does. I want to get to know Him. David inquires of this young man, Who are you? Where are you from? The guy tells him, Well, I'm a foreigner, kind of a resident citizen. I'm an Amalekite. <laughs> And David takes this as an act against the true and living Lord. And so David mentions the Lord in verse 14 and verse 16. He's going as far as saying that this man said with his own mouth that he had killed the Lord's anointed. And so what does David do? David says, hey, the young guy over there, kill him. Kill him. And, and again, you know, there's a lot there. I don't want to read too much into this. We can't miss the way David is different and that he loved his enemy. But here, again, is something that's pretty cool, you guys. For those of you who are listening, okay, you're going to get a $5 gift certificate to In-N-Out if you answer this question, okay? For those of you who are listening, what do the Amalekites represent? All right, who said it first? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> The Amalekites represent the flesh, the fallen nature, right? And who does David represent? Jesus. 
And so David has the Amalekite killed under his authority and Jesus will give us the power to kill the flesh as well. David didn't do it, but David gave this young man the authority and the command and the power to kill the flesh. And in a sense, that's the way it is for us. You know, if you try to do it, you can always tell when you're trying to do this thing on your own strength. You want to know how? You fail. You keep getting mad at your wife. You keep getting mad at your wife. Every single time you get mad at your wife, you're doing it in your own strength. But when your wife pushes that button, which some wives do, right? And you just respond in love, in wisdom, and in a biblical fashion, then that's the, that's the Lord. That's the Lord giving you the strength. I don't know what your vice is. I don't know what your struggles are. We all have our own struggles. But man, by, by God's power, we can overcome this. Otherwise, you know what? We are going to end up being in bondage to that. You know, I, I grew up in, in uh, you know, a beautiful family. Well, when I went to my aunt and uncles, they had me these cousins. Beautiful. And they had everything that money could give you. But it's the drugs. It's the drugs that has complete... Now it's been, you know, 20 years now that has thrashed their life. They could never stop. And I see it just... It's crazy. You know, and I don't know what the struggle might be for you. Maybe it's alcohol. You don't need it. God gave you a beautiful personality. You don't need any help. Look at Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. And this is the struggle that we have, you guys. In Romans 7 verse 15. He said, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. I don't know if you guys can understand that. But he's saying, man, what I want to do, it's like I can't keep doing it. What I don't want to do, it's like I keep doing it. He says, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. You're not going to find it in yourself. That's what he's saying. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Man, I just keep doing it. And so he says, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And so Paul is just saying, man, I got this war going on. This war, I want to do good and I can't do it. And, you know, it's just crazy. And he's just, man, I can't overcome. And then he says, this is what he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And look what he says. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Jesus, Jesus is the one that delivers us from that battle. And you might ask, well, well, how? 
How did Jesus deliver you, know, you from all the drugs that you used to do? Well, he died on a cross. He came down. He was born on Christmas Day. 33 years later, they nailed him to a cross. And when he was on that cross, all my sins. He bore all my sins. He paid my penalty for me. And so, here's what happened. When I placed my faith in Jesus, I remember the day, man. I went forward. I was just broken. I gave my life to him. Then, guess what happened? The power of the Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. God came inside of me. See? Because that's what Romans chapter 8 is all about. That's what it talks about. Now you got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I know a lot of people, you know, they, they make excuses for their sins. Well, I'm just a man and nobody's perfect. That's true. It's true. But you got God living in you. And I'll bet you almost anything, not to... You know, freak you guys out, but I'll bet you that we can be a lot more like Jesus than we have been. If we'd stop making excuses and realize that God lives in us. Because Jesus died so that God can live in you. And David told this young man, hey, go and kill the Amalekite. Kill that, that flesh. I give you the command and I give you the authority. So guess what? The good news is this, that there's no excuse. There's no excuse, man. We can be the people that God calls us to be. But, but the problem is unbelief. You don't believe that God lives in you. You're a Christian. God lives in you. But you don't believe it. You know, today I was reading with my wife and we were reading about that story. I think it's Mark chapter 6 where it says Jesus could do no mighty works there because he didn't believe. See, you got to believe. You got to believe as a Christian that God lives in you. And you can, we can overcome. We can be like Jesus. We got to kill the flesh. God's given us the command and God has given us the authority. Philippians chapter 4. says in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I love that. I love that, you guys. Who knows what God's going to do with your life. It's amazing when you realize that. See, back in Second Samuel... We transition now from the news to the blues, from the wrong of the Amalekite to the song of David. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, And then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Now, we don't know nothing about the book of Jasher other than it's in Joshua chapter 10. Maybe a compilation of poems of great men and things they did. But, but basically, David, he says, we're going to lament this guy. And, and again, here's the, the challenge. Maybe it's just me, but here's your enemy. He dies. You know what we usually want to do? Just erase him. Erase them. Get him away. What does David do? He writes a song. 
And we know he was an anointed worship leader. And he tells everybody to teach them, literally in the Hebrew language, to memorize this song. Memorize this song. And so he goes on. And look what he says in verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And he says that three times in the song. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. And you know, we know that here it talks about them dying. But, you know, I think we can probably relate that to other things. How the mighty have fallen. How that guy over there had such a calling on his life. God was using him in a tremendous way to change the world and impact the kingdom. But he fell into sexual sin. He committed adultery. How the mighty have fallen. And it's just sick and it's in a bad sense. Okay, sick in a bad sense. In that you see it happen over and over again. Saul shouldn't have died. Jonathan shouldn't have died. Jonathan died because of his father. Because of the sin of his father. They fell because of Saul's sin. How the mighty have fallen. He says, Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. He didn't want the word to get out because he knew that they would honor their gods. Oh, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you nor fields of offerings for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. He, he calls all creation, this mountain specifically, to mourn with him. And then he says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. You know, David is saying, you know, these guys, they didn't, they didn't go back. If you study 1 Samuel, they lined up at Mount Gilboa. It's not like they fled. They didn't chicken out. They fought. They went down for their country. And so Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives and in their death. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. There's no doubt that under the reign of Saul, things got better financially, economically, there's reason for weeping, he says, consider the clothing, the luxury, the jewelry that you ladies got. But, and here's the climax, for David, far more important than anything else, in verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now we knew this was coming because we knew that David and Jonathan were tight, right? They had this relationship that was amazing. David was distressed. It literally means to be 
tied up. It speaks of suffering, extreme anxiety, sorrow, pain. And the reason for the deep pain of David was the deep love that David had towards his friend, Jonathan. He says this, and this is a trippy verse. Your love, brother, bro. They were BFFs back then, okay? Your love, our love, was better than the love that guys have towards girls, women. And, um, you know, remember in those days, David had multiple wives. So it wasn't just one wife. But the thing is this, it was a different type of love. Now, I think Abigail was a cool wife. I'm not sure about Michal or some of the others that David had. But you know what? When David and Jonathan became friends, it was such a deep friendship. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And it's an amazing thing when you read that there. Sadly, there are some who see this as David having a homosexual relationship with Jonathan. But the bottom line is, these are guys whose minds are in the gutter. They're in the sewer. Who don't fathom the concept of true and total, otherly, brotherly love that is possible in Christ. You know, there's something about this, man, going to war with somebody. Have you ever been to war? Fighting in the in, in you know Afghanistan or or you know Vietnam, and you're side by side and you're fighting in war with another man, and you go through the battle and you see people die around you, and you're there for each other in the good times and the hard times. There is something about that type of brotherly love that cannot be described. And I'll tell you this, man. You know, I never, I never, you know, went to war. I mean, part of me kind of wishes I would, and, and I know that might sound weird, you know, but man, my, thank you for you men that have gone to war for our country. Thank you. But you know, that whole experience can be now brought into the spiritual realm. Because there is a war going on. And it's a spiritual war. And when me, when I, as a brother... Find another brother in this spiritual war with me, entrenched in the war, consumed with the glory of Christ, advancing and going through the good times and the bad times together. When you have a a brother like that, and you see him slaying Goliath, or you just see they go through life together, I tell you what, there is this otherly, there is this brotherly love that God can do, that David had with Jonathan, that we see now, it is deeper than any type of erotic love. It's a Philadelphia, it's a brotherly love that comes from God, an agape love, that really, you know, we probably shouldn't be ashamed of. I mean... When you guys read that verse right there, your love, our love was better than love for a woman. I was talking to Henry earlier. I'm like, that sounds kind of weird, huh, bro? I mean, how many guys would say that? How many guys, think about you guys. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend like that? A deep friend who you know, crunch time, they'll be there for you. You'll be there for them. It's rare. 
but it's something that we should have in our life. And let me share with you guys a few verses in closing. First Thessalonians 4 verse 9 says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, just in case you're wondering, it's not just for the guys, it's for the girls too. Right? Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. I like that. In honor, giving preference to one another, which is exactly what Jonathan did. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Let brotherly love continue. I like that. When David's there and he's weeping and he's mourning for his friend Jonathan, you see the deep love and so you see the deep pain as a result of that, you guys. There's lessons here. You know, there's information, there's vindication, there's lamentation, and it's all for transformation. These things were written for our own admonition. I tell you what, God wants you to connect the dots. God loves you. And I would say for non-Christians and Christians, it's just, it's just time to change. It's time to grow up. It's time to look up and really be, you know, the soldiers. You know what the Bible says, you guys? And I, and I know it, that no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And sometimes, you know, you're like, well, I'm serving, I'm serving. Yeah, you're serving, kind of. But a lot of times I think that there are many people in the church who are really entangled with the affairs of this life. And I'm just telling you, man, I would, if I was you, I would untangle myself. And I would get, just get completely consumed in, in the kingdom of God. One last thing, okay? Remember, Second Samuel is about David becoming king. Saul is a picture of the devil. David is a picture of who? Jesus. Now, on this earth right now, you, you want to know who, who, like, the God of this world is? You guys know who it is, right? It's the devil, man. In all reality, you know, the devil is having a field day on this earth. He is. But Jesus has been anointed king, and we know the day is going to come when he is going to reign. And it's going to happen pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. And I look forward to that day. I really do, you guys. And so... You know, let's, uh, let's get caught up in that kingdom, man. Let's really seek the Lord with everything that we are. Because He's coming. He's coming. And we need to be ready. Father, we thank You for allowing us to study Your Word together, Lord. I thank You for even the deep challenges of, of being that type of brother. Uh, the deep challenge of, of being like Jesus.